right, so if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it up with me to John chapter 3 is our text. You can open it up on your iPad or your smartphone or you can go old school and old fashioned with me today and just open up the book here. And um, John chapter 3 is our text. It's a wonderful passage. In fact, verses 1 through 21 uh, over the next three weeks and today and the next two, uh, we're going to uh, look at this dialogue that Jesus had with a man by the name of Nicodemus. If you're new to Great Hills, let me just bring you up to speed just a little bit. We are, uh, since February, we have been studying the Word of God together in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have been studying these dynamic dialogues and encounters that Jesus Christ had, not with the crowds, not really with the 12 disciples or the three Peter, James, and John specifically, we have been looking at the way Jesus Christ one-on-one interfaced with, interacted with, and dialogued with those in the New Testament. And what we've gleaned from this study is just as Jesus Christ loved people, talked to people, engaged with people, that He has given us this model, this template, whereby we as little Christ, followers of Christ, that we can take those salient principles that Jesus so clearly given us, given us here in the New Testament, and we can apply them to our own lives as we meet people, as we meet the down and out, as we meet the up and out, as we meet the religious elite like Jesus did here with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, or we meet the leper like we talked about last week, people that are Uh, just in great, tremendous need. And by the way, the whole gamut then is the same today. We have people of all types and all types of personalities and needs. And so when we as God's people, when we have our spiritual antennas up and we are like, Lord, who is my one today? I'm going to minister for that one. I really believe with all of my heart. And God has proven this over and over at Great Hills Baptist Church, as we are sensitive, God is faithful to put people in our path that we might be able to serve, to minister to, to dialogue with, yea, sometimes to even argue with in a a good way. And that's what Jesus does here with Nicodemus, this Pharisee, this man who is a member of what is known as the ruling elite political and religious body of first century Israel, and that would have been the Sanhedrin. So, Randy Newman talks about uh, an encounter he had, and he calls him, in a way, a Pharisee, a man who was proud, who was arrogant, and he was ready to argue and to debate with a man by the name of Randy. Randy Newman was taking a group of college students to Daytona Beach, Florida, and the reason they were going to the beach, it was beach week. And some of our students have done this before where they go to South Padre. This group went to Daytona Beach and he had a busload, about 50 college students. And they were driving to the beach. It's about one o'clock in the morning. And Randy Newman says he's the leader of this group of Campus Crusade for Christ. And he's about to fall asleep. And the bus driver said, this bus has got a bunch of Christians on it, doesn't it? And uh, Randy said, well, sir, yeah, yes, we do. And he said, well, let me, just, let me just ask you a question. How can you people believe everything you read in a book just on blind faith? And he took a big old drag out of his cigarette. He just took a big, long drag out of his cigarette and blew the, blew the smoke out the window. Everybody's asleep in the back. He's just driving. He's smoking his cigarette. He's ready to argue. 
And Randy Newman was kind of shocked by it. And he says, well, uh, what, what, do you, what do you mean just by blind faith in a book? He says, yeah, like when the Bible says that the Israelites crossed over the Red Sea. He says, that's impossible. He said, I've read, I read this Hebrew scholar who said that was not the Red Sea, that was the Reed Sea. And the Reed Sea was only a few inches deep. So you tell me, how could the children of Israel go through, a, you know, go through that and the Bible claimed that there was this big miracle where the waters were parted? How can three inches of water part? So Randy Newman said, okay, <laughs> I got to wake up. I've got to talk to this guy because obviously he's wanting to argue. He's wanting to debate with me about the Bible. And so this is what he said. He said, okay, sir. He said, well, let, let's talk about that. He said, first of all, Randy did not say that he was tempted. You know, how could all the Egyptian army drown in three inches of water? He didn't, he didn't go there. He said he, he didn't want us to do that. But he said this man was being very arrogant, and he needed to challenge him in his arrogance. So Randy Newman says, I have studied Yom Suf. What is your take on Yom Suf? That's the Hebrew word. It's translated. You translated it, read sea. I've translated it, red sea. Surely you have studied this thoroughly. So, Mr. Bus Driver, please tell me, what is your take on this Hebrew phrase of Yom Suf? And the bus driver's like, why, why? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I, and he goes, but no, you, you've obviously, you've read it. You've put a lot of thought into it. He said, no, man. He said, I just read it in a book somewhere. And, and I just believe that what the guy, he said, oh, so you've put complete blind faith in a book that somebody has written. He took another drag on his cigarette and got mad. And so uh, Randy said, you know, I don't want the bus driver getting mad. So we wrapped up the conversation. You know, there are times when we need to be a little more intentional and confrontational in the way we talk with people. A lot of times we are so syrupy sweet that we do not bring up the hard issues and confront people in their arrogance and in their total rejection of the gospel. Now, I think you know me enough by now that I am, I'm, I'm very careful in the way I talk with people and the way I debate with people. I don't want to come across as some arrogant know-it-all because I'm not arrogant and I certainly don't know it all. But Jesus is about to demonstrate something here that there are times when you need to be a little more confrontational and a little more intentional in the way you speak with people, especially those who are braggadocious, and maybe they are a little arrogant, a little bit proud. So here's the text. I'm going to read it to you. It's uh, the new birth, John 3, 1 through 10 is as far as we can get. And I'm just going to go ahead and prepare you that Jesus Christ, he is not going to mess around. He is going to go directly to the heart of the issue. So I'm just preparing you now before we read it. Here it is. There was a man of the Pharisees uh, named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a good teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus said to him, Amen, amen. Most assuredly, the, the Greek is amen and amen. I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Wow. So much for niceties. 
<laughs> so much for, oh, thank you for that kind compliment of me being a rabbi, a teacher come from God. Jesus just cut right through that and he said, Nicodemus, let's just cut to the chase. You, Mr. Religious Nicodemus, you're going to need to be born again. Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a man be born when he is old? Now they're into this rabbinic question, answer, dialogue, interchange. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Wow. Come on now. Unless you are born again of water and Spirit, you cannot go to heaven, Nicodemus. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now Nicodemus answered, and he said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Oh, wow, <laughs> you're the teacher of all of Israel? And you do not know these things. So let's stop right here with, with this dialogue, this interchange. As we look at verses 1 through 10, next week we'll go a little further and we'll cover verse 16, which, by the way, John 3, 16 is the most famous popular verse in all the Bible. And it was ushered or uttered by Jesus within the context of a debate, of a dialogue between a religious elite man and by Jesus Christ, uh, the King of kings and Lord of lords. One writer describes this man this way. He says, yes, Nicodemus is a religious gentry. He is a blue-blooded intellectual. And he comes to Jesus Christ under the cloak of darkness. And why? Why did Nicodemus come to Jesus at night? And I quote, to give Jesus some advice? to get information for the Sanhedrin? Or is it because he recognizes there's something missing in his own life? Why does he come at, after dark to escape detection, to walk undisturbed, no other time to come? Or is he so anxious that he cannot wait until morning? End of quote. Another writer puts it like this. He says, here you have this classic, this classic dialogue between, on the one hand, you have the intelligent, older, wealthy, theological professor coming to talk to the younger, less educated, formerly less educated peasant teacher. I love this story. I love it for many reasons because it gives me courage. It, the Bible never gives us the right or the license to be mean or to be unkind. It never does. We are to be kind and, and gracious and forgiving. But there are times when God will bring you into the path of someone who you just need to be a little bit more bold, a little bit more confrontational, a little more intentional, and to listen more and to ask more pointed questions. That's precisely what Jesus is doing here with this blue-blooded uh, intellectual man by the name of Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee, and I want us to make sure we understand exactly what a Pharisee was. A Pharisee is someone who was a part of the Sanhedrin. 
there are two primary religious bodies, if you will, political religious bodies in the, in, in the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin, when I use that word, it's 70 individuals, including the high priest, full of Pharisees and Sadducees. Listen, in Israel, they did not just set the climate politically, they set the climate religiously. And Jesus Christ, being the rogue that he was, came in and upset their apple cart of tradition and legalism and formalism. And they, because he did that, they absolutely hated him for it. And they, they determine in their heart and in their spirit that everything within them, they are going to topple him and overcome him so that they can remain in their proud, arrogant power. That's why whenever you see Jesus dealing with these people in the New Testament, it's usually a very combative, confrontational way. And the reason is they hated him. And Jesus Christ did not back down from the dilemma or from the debate. He was strong, he was compassionate, he was bold, he had the hide of a crocodile and he had the heart of a lamb. And Jesus was able to show us that there are times when you need to step outside of your timidity and your fear and you need to speak the truth of God and speak it in love. And that's what Jesus is doing here with Nicodemus. Let me give you some characteristics of a Pharisee. And by the way, today's sermon is a little bit different. There are no points or subpoints. There is just a homily. A homily in homiletics is basically I read the text and I walk you through the passage of Scripture and we deal with each one of the major movements of the text. And that's what we're going to do today. And I'm just praying that the Holy Spirit will give you your points, your subpoints, and the Holy Spirit will speak to you and you grapple with this amazing dialogue. Here's some characteristics of them. Number one, they're very narrow. They're very narrow and strict and thorough in their interpretation of the law. Okay, that's a, that's a Pharisee. Number two, they're extremely dogmatic. They interpret the scriptures within their, their hermeneutic of tradition. And tradition to them trumps everything else. Tradition, the way we've always done it, is the way God wants us to do it, and we will forever do it this way. No other way. Don't color outside the parameters. Don't go outside the lines, because if you do, we just might kill you for it. Tradition is preeminent. Tradition trumps even God. Tradition. Don't get outside of it. And that was a Pharisee. They were very powerful religious elitism. Number three, they believed in the supernatural. Now, you say, what's such a big deal about that? But well, the Sadducees, and here's a way you can differentiate between a Pharisee and a Sadducee. They were sad, you see, because <laughs> they didn't believe in the supernatural. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection, a heaven, a hell, demons, angels, anything outside the empirical domain the Sadducees didn't believe in it, right? They believed that, basically they believed in God and that, that was it. And they had their own traditions and belief system. So, but the Pharisees, not so. The Pharisees believed in all of this. They believed in the same things that Jesus believed, at least on the surface, that there was a life and an afterlife. And there was the demonic and there was the angelic and there was the resurrection of the dead. And the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection of the dead like the Pharisees did. 
Next is they were very formal in their religion. Formalism, legalism, liturgy. Religion, religion, religion is what's important. Not relationship with, with God, not knowing God personally, not living a joy-filled, spirit-filled life. They, they rejected that. It's all about religion. It's all about doing the things we have always done, the way we've always done them, and that's what's important. That's how we please God, and that's what they believe. The last thing I would share with you is they were teachers. They were rulers of the religion. All the synagogues were led by rabbis, Pharisees. They were people who had power. They had preeminence in first century Israel. Now, Nicodemus is a little different. Nicodemus is at least open to talking to Jesus and not so much in a combative way, but in a way that he could learn maybe a little bit more about Jesus. And Jesus welcomed that. He met Nick at night, right? Nick comes to him at night, and they're sitting there under the cloak of darkness, and Nicodemus is very interested in Jesus. And in fact, he begins with a compliment. I, I know you're from God because nobody can do what you do. Nobody can say what you say unless he has the authority of God on his life. And Nicodemus was thinking, well, that was pretty nice. That's how I'll start. And Jesus said, forget that. You need to be born again. Wow. What happened to Nicodemus? You know, there's very good possibility that this encounter with Jesus changed his life. This evangelistic methodology of Jesus where he cut through the chase, and he wasn't that he was mean or mean-spirited or angry, but he just knew that for some people who are religious, you cannot dance around the issues with them. You have to be direct, confrontational, and to the point. Nicodemus, I believe, became a Christian. I believe he gave his life to Christ. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, let me show it to you in the Gospel of John. The Bible says after this, toward the end of the Gospel of John 19, that Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So Joseph of Arimathea came, and he took the body of Jesus. But watch this. He wasn't alone in Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus when, church? So we know it's the same guy, right? You say, well, there's lots of Nicodemus, you know. John has given us a clue, an interpretive clue, that this Nicodemus was the very same guy that spoke to Jesus at night. And watch what he does. He came he brought mixture of myrrh and aloes and about a hundred pounds. Then they, that would be Nicodemus and Joseph, they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Why is he doing all that? Why is, why is Nicodemus so concerned and involved in the death of Jesus Christ? I believe in my heart that it's because Nicodemus had met him and been changed by the life and the teachings of Jesus. And by the way, it's what happened to me. The same thing happened to me. I was religious. I was formal. I was studying to be a pastor in a Southern Baptist church. And I, like Nicodemus, had not received the Holy Spirit. 
I had never been born again. I had never surrendered my life to Christ. Yes, I walked down the aisle of a Baptist church and I filled out a card. I remember it. I was six years of age. I walked down, my brother walked down the aisle and I walked down the aisle. You think I'm short now? You should have seen me when I was six years of age. I mean, I was like, I was like this tall. I was almost like a dwarf. I mean, I was just a little bitty fella walking down here. I sat on that pew and a person came to me and says, what's your name? Danny Forshee. Okay, they put my name down. And they presented me to the church. This young man comes. Nobody prayed with me. Nobody talked to me. They said, this young man now is a Christian. And everybody's like, whoa. And I was like, this is pretty cool, you know. And then they baptized me. They didn't have the little steps that you step on in the baptistry. So I, I don't know how they saw me. I guess the pastor picked me up and said, look. Here he is. Here, and I was like, I was waving, you know, at everybody. I was six years old. And I've shared this before, but the only thing I remember about that baptism is that my dad was at home drunk. He wouldn't come. He was an alcoholic. He was consumed with alcohol. There's no way he could have the wherewithal to come to church at a, on a Sunday morning and to see his two sons get baptized. So I was dunked. And for the rest of my life until college, I was good. I was religious, I was not born again, but that's okay. And I, I stayed out of trouble. I was the guy in high school who drove all my drunk friends from the parties. I'd play football with them, I'd play basketball with them, but I would be the person who was just really different because I was religious, very religious. Until I went to college and this young man named Johnny looked at me, he said, Danny, are you born again? Are you saved? And I was like, well, yes. I'm good. I was six years old. I walked down. He goes, well, what happened to you? I filled out the card. <laughs> what else happened to you? I got baptized. He said, that's all good, but are you born again? Or do you know for sure when you die, you're going to heaven? I said, you need to be quiet. You need to quit talking to me. And that's what religious people do. They get defensive. And Johnny Hughes would come to my dorm room, and I would see him coming, and I would say, guys, turn out the lights, pull the blinds, shh, maybe he'll leave us alone, because I knew he was going to come and witness to me finally at 19 years of age, a ministerial student, a sophomore in college, I got on my knees, and I said, God, I give up, I give you my life, I want to be saved, and God saved me, but it took that kind of bold, confrontational, what, come on now, you cannot depend on your mom's religion. You cannot depend on your baptism. The Holy Spirit of God has to come into you. And the only reason he, the only way he'll come into you is that you have to confess that you are a sinner and you deserve hell and you need to be born again. Woo, man, it took it. But here I am today and I'm so glad, grateful to God that somebody loved me enough to confront me in my religiosity. Grateful to God or I, I would not be here today. <clears throat> So Nicodemus and Jesus have a face-to-face, -face. <laughs> one writer said, they had a mind-to-mind, then -mind. eventually they had a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. Verse 3, I say to you, not thank you, oh, appreciate it, Nick, for the compliment, but no, you also need to be born again. I love the phrase born again. You know, Jimmy Carter came out and said he was born again years ago. And people were like, what is that? Well, that was a John 3 moment. It, to be born again means to 
confess your sin, repent, and the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ comes in and inhabits you that once he did not inhabit. In other words, there is, there is a time, just like naturally, when you are born naturally into this world through your mother's womb, you, there was a time you were not, and then there was a time you are, and it's the same way spiritually. Whenever somebody tells me, I've always been, anybody, a Christian. I've always been a Christian. And I look at them, and, and guys, I know I, this is a little bit out of my nature to be this confrontational. I tell them, that's impossible. What are you talking about? That's impossible. And I'm saying, no, no, I have a story. You want to hear my story? Because Jesus said in John 3, just like there's a natural birth, there was a time you were not, and now there is a time you are. It's the same spiritually. There was a time the Spirit of God did not inhabit you, and then there was a time when the Spirit of God did come into you, and that's called the rebirth. Okay? Verse 4, <laughs> I love his typical rabbinical response when he responded to Jesus' question with another question. How could this be, he said. And Jesus said in verse 5, Nicodemus, listen to me. You've got to be born of water and born of the Spirit. Now, let's talk about that. What does that mean? Some of you are looking at me going, John 3, 5, that, that passage has always given me trouble. I, I don't understand. Well, let me give you four interpretations of what that means. And by the way, if you're new to Great Hills, this is our world. This is, this is how we operate. We teach the Bible. That's all I got. <laughs> I don't have any other philosophy or ideology. I don't have some grand scheme of your best life or how to live a great life. Now, all I got is the Bible, okay? And that's all, that's all I've ever had, and that's all I'm going to ever teach is the Bible, okay? So there are four interpretations of this. Number one, it's called baptismal. You may want to write these down, seriously, uh, because there's going to come a time when some of you are going to be asked this question about what it takes to become a Christian. And there are many people who believe, there's a whole denomination that believes that John 3, 5, that Jesus said you had to be baptized to go to heaven. Is that what he said? John 3, 5, Jesus said you got to be born of water. And some of my brothers go, ha-ha, water, salvation. You have to be baptized in order to go to heaven. That's, that's exhibit A, all right? Number two, is when Jesus said you have to be born of water, all he was saying is you, you have to be born naturally into this world. You know, the water breaks of a, of a mom, of a woman, and here he comes. Little baby's coming pretty soon after that water breaks. And listen, you better be getting close to a hospital. When that water breaks, it's like, woo, this is on, man. This baby's a coming. And, and there's a lot of, I think, weight behind this interpretation because the context within the text supports this because the verse right after verse 5, verse 6, do you see it? Natural. That's what Jesus said in verse 6. He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, just like you came into this world, born naturally of water, you entered into the world, you have to be born of the Holy Spirit. Number three, that what Jesus is saying here is, that when he said born of water, he's speaking of a metaphorical washing by the word of God. And there's some credence to that because John 15, 3 says this. You are already clean 
because of the word which I have spoken to you. All right, did you see that? Cleansing connotation of water, the word that washes over you and cleanses you. And the fourth one is this. And this one is, is in the one that intrigues me the most. To be born of water refers to the work of the Holy Spirit in the salvation process. And the verse that people appeal to is Titus 3, 5, which I think is a great proof verse on this. It says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so I think there's credence in all four except the first one. I don't think that is at all what Jesus is teaching, that you have to do a work, that you have to do a, a physical act of baptism in order to receive the Spirit and go to heaven. If that was the case, then the rest of the New Testament totally contradicts that. Because Let me give you an example. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved, not of yourself, not of works. It is a gift of God. So I think 2, 3, and 4 definitely has credence. I just don't think it's teaching a baptismal regeneration. Okay? The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 1, we're all dead people. We're dead spiritually. Our parents sinned against God. Their names were Adam and Eve. And as we are born into this earth, into this world, we have received, Romans chapter 5, we have received this Adamic sinful nature. You don't have to teach a toddler to sin. He just knows how to do it. He's gifted at it. He'll just pinch his little sister. He'll just go steal her food. He's just good. You know why? Because he's sinful. He's good at it because he's sinful. The Bible says all of us are born into this world. Yes, we're created in the image of God. Yes, we're good in the sense that God has created us, but we are sinful and we need a Savior. We need the Holy Spirit that's outside of us to come inside of us and to clean us and to prepare us so that we can go to heaven. And how does that happen? And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you don't know how this happens? My, 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 you're the religious teacher of all of Israel and you don't know what it means to be born again. Wow, it's powerful. Jesus is basically telling him, I'm your answer, Nicodemus. If you will trust in me and believe in me, then you can receive this new this new birth. In verse 8. In verse 8, the Lord gives us this teaching regarding the work of the Spirit by way of illustration. And I love the way the Lord does this. He uses the illustration of the wind. Because Nicodemus is, is pleading the fifth of ignorance. He's going, I don't know what this means. And Jesus says, well, look at it like this, Nicodemus. It's like the wind. You don't know where the wind comes from. You don't know the, where the wind's going. All that you know is when that gentle breeze wafts against your cheek, you know, wait a minute, that's wind, and that is real. And Jesus is saying it's the same way with the Holy Spirit. You may not understand him completely. You may not understand where he's coming from, where he's going, but it's the same as if the wind, ooh, watch this, just because you can't see it, Nicodemus, does not mean it doesn't exist. Just like the wind, you can't see it, but you know the after effect of it. You know when it blows across your life. One writer puts it this way. He says, the origin and destination of the wind are unknown. Unknown to the one who feels it and acknowledges its reality. Just so. 
The new life of one born of the Spirit is unexplainable by ordinary reasoning. And its outcome is unpredictable, though its actuality is undeniable. In verse 9, Nicodemus asked Jesus, how can this be? Do, Do I go back into my mother's womb and start all over? You said born again. Now, you got to understand, they're, they're kind of going at it a little bit, right? They're kind of arguing. They're debating the deep principles, the theology of God. And, and so there's this clash, and, and there's this, this dialogue and debate, this remonstrance, this back and forth. And, and that's when Jesus just said, look, you're, you're the teacher of Israel. And I, what I'm thinking, Jesus is thinking, is have not you ever read Ezekiel chapter 36? Have you not read Ezekiel 36, Nicodemus, when it says, So I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take out of you this heart of stone out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put, look at this, guys. I will put my spirit. That sounds like a lot like being born again by the spirit. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them, and that's Ezekiel, centuries before Christ. I love this dialogue, and I love it for a lot of reasons. One, because it reminds me of me. It reminds me of my day when I came to the Lord, and I was finally, God was so gracious, so gracious to me. I knew a lot of Bible I could quote the Bible. In fact, I don't know many people that quote Scripture when they get saved, and that's exactly what happened to me. I quoted Romans 10, 9, and the Holy Spirit of God came into my life. And I knew that God had saved me because my attitude changed. I no longer wanted to fight with my brother. I didn't want to argue with him. I, I just wanted to literally had three physical blood brothers. And I would just go up there and I hugged each one of them in my home in Mobile, Alabama. And they were looking at me like, Danny, what in the world? You're strange. You're different. And I was like, Spirit of God, God Almighty has saved me. And I kept that to just me and the Lord for six months. Because Lord, I said, I'm a big man on campus. It was a little campus, by the way. (laughs) I was president of the Ministerial Association. I was a speaker. I'm traveling around the area, and I'm I'm a guest speaker in these churches. I can't do many things, but God always gave me. He gave me this gift, even as a high schooler, and I'm giving speeches in high school and being elected for offices. I just just could speak. It's just a gift God had given me, and so... I'm just speaking, and people think, oh, wow, and he's a good preacher, and, and look at there. And I was like, okay, Lord, they don't know what you and I know. And, and, and long as long as we keep this just us, I won't embarrass you, and it won't embarrass me, so let's don't talk anymore about getting baptized. <laughs> I don't want to get baptized, because if I go get baptized... Then they'll say, oh, wow, you never were a Christian when you were doing all those speaking. I was like, Lord, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go through that because that's going to be humbling. And God said, okay. Month by month by month. I was like, oh, this is awful. 
Have you ever been convicted? <laughs> you know, like convicted by the Holy Spirit. And I was like, finally, after six months of running from God, I didn't care who knew what. I ran down this aisle, this Baptist aisle, College Park Baptist Church. I ran to the preacher and I said, I'm... I've, I've never been baptized like I should. I just got saved a few months ago. Would you please baptize me? And then I looked around, and I don't know if the preacher preached on baptism or what, because here comes my roommate in college. He said, me too. 65-year-old deacon, pillar in the church said, I need to be baptized. And I was like, oh, my word, what is going on here? And I was just like, oh, the peace of God just flowing through me. And I was like, Thank you, Lord. What in the world? Why did it take me so long? I'll close with this story. It's a, it's a fascinating story of sometimes how we... I wanted to begin with this, and I want to end with this. There are times when you just have to be a little more bold than you usually are. So Jerry Falwell. How many of y'all remember Jerry Falwell? Jerry Falwell died a few years ago in 2007. He was the founder and the president of Liberty University. And one thing about Jerry Falwell... You either loved him or you hated him. And I just want you to know, I absolutely loved him. One of the great privileges of my life is to be able to preach at Liberty University. I'd never spoken to so many people in my life. And I got to preach at their convocation. And then after the service, you get to go meet with the president. And that would be Jerry Falwell. I don't know why we were talking about fasting. He, had, he was finishing up another 40-day fast. He said, yes. Young man, I drink a cup of coffee and take my vitamin, and that's all I get for the whole day. And I was like, Lord, please don't ever ask me to do that. That just sounds awful. And sure enough, I ended up doing one. And he was so gracious, and he was so smart. Dr. Willimon was the dean of the chapel at Duke University for 23 years. And Dr. Willimon had a student at a dare came up to him and said, I dare you to invite Jerry Falwell to come speak at Duke University. And Dr. Willimont says, well, I'll take you up on that dare because I know he will not come. <laughs> so he extended the invitation to Jerry Falwell on a dare. And Dr. Falwell says, well, I would be delighted to come <laughs> and speak to that prestigious Christian university. And Willimont said, I almost passed out because he thought, oh, my word. He's going to come. And he wrote him back. He said, well, I, well yeah, okay, but I, we can't pay you anything. And uh, so, you know, might as well not come. Dr. Falwell said, that don't matter. You don't, you don't have to pay me. You don't have to pay my airfare. I have my own jet. I'll just fly down and speak. <laughs> the president of Duke University called Dr. Willimon into her office, and she said, have you lost your mind? Why did you invite him? When is your job evaluation coming up next? And he was like, oh, no, what have I done? The word got out. And there was a group on campus called the Lesbian, Bisexual, Preoperative, Postoperative, Transgendered Alliance. And they demanded Dr. Willimon's resignation. So much for tolerance, right? So much for tolerance. They demanded his resignation. He said, no, I'm... I'm not going to resign. I'm going to invite this company. Hey, guys, y'all are Duke. Y'all are the brightest of the bright. Just grill him, put him in his place, and send him back to Podunk, Lynchburg, Virginia. They're like, all right, we're going to. The place was packed. 
I mean, you could not put another student. And it was like, it was electric. They were there to grill this conservative fundamentalist hillbilly preacher from Liberty University. He said, um, when I went to introduce him, he said, oh, my land. He said, you would have thought Dean Smith had walked into the room. Now, Dean Smith, you got to understand, was the head basketball coach of the University of North Carolina Tar Heels. And the Tar Heels and the Duke Blue Devils, that's an awful mascot. But anyhow, the Duke Blue Devils and the Tar Heels, they hate each other. And so he said, you would think that I was introducing Dean Smith. The place was hissing and, and booing and angry and yelling. And finally, they calmed down. And Jerry Falwell spoke for the first 30 minutes upon how Duke and Harvard and Princeton and all of these other prestigious universities owe their existence to the church. <laughs> oh, it made them mad. They did, they did not want to, to hear that. And then they opened it up for a time of questions and answers. Ooh, let me tell you, this is where it got really intense. The first student at the microphone was an African-American, and she asked this question, and it went something like this. I can't stand your right-wing, narrow-minded religion. You say you're a Christian, but you preach hate. How many African-Americans do you have at Liberty University? Woo! Place went bonkers. Cheering and crowds were yelling, woo, woo, woo. And Jerry Falwell said, young lady, you could not have asked a question that hurts me more deeply. In asking about minority student enrollment, you have named my most regrettable failure at Liberty University. I have prayed. I have worked. I have been throughout this country attempting to recruit ethnic minority students. And though we have a greater success among some ethnic minority groups, I am sad to report that our enrollment today stands at only about 12% African American. Jerry Falwell continued, of course, we're a very young university, less than a decade in existence, and we have such a small endowment. But how can I be sure that I'm not simply deceiving myself? I am unwilling to accept excuses for our infidelity in regard to our ministry with African Americans. Just the other day, I was pouring out my heart on this very subject matter to Coretta. You know, Coretta Scott King. That's Martin Luther King's wife, by the way. We try to get together every few months. She's such a wonderful person. And she told me, don't be so consumed with this problem. But I'm telling you, ma'am, I just can't help myself. At the mention of Coretta's name, the place went eerily silent. Falwell said, uh, young lady, do, do you know how many African Americans are enrolled here at Duke? She's like, no, he says, I know, 6%. Your endowment is 50 times bigger than ours. You have had years to work on this issue, though admittedly you spent half of your life as a racially segregated school. In fact, I struggled whether the Lord wanted me to come here tonight to a school that though you have been given great gifts, you have such a poor record of minority enrollment. I pray that you will let the Lord help you do better in this area. Dead silence throughout the auditorium. And then Willimon said this. Jerry went on to field every question 
And I sat there seething with contempt for the wimpishness of the Duke audience. Is this all it took? They were putty in a Baptist hands. When Jerry finally finished his banter, he received, if not a standing, at least a very warm ovation. The man's no fool, I said to myself. Lord, give me a portion of his gift of manipulation of an academic audience. <laughs> finally, Jerry Falwell told Dr. Willimon, you've got a great ministry here. You can have a remarkable influence upon talented young lives. And Willimon thought to himself, if only I were you. There are times when God puts us on a spot that we need to speak up. You, you know what we have, church, that the world does not have? We have the truth of God. Amen. We have an empty tomb, let me remind you. We have a Holy Spirit who comes into us, literally gives us words to speak. We have a written love letter of 66 canonical books of Scripture. We have a universe that has been uniquely, intricately designed. We, we have all of these amazing things, and yet when we step into the arena sometimes, the first thing we want to do is just cower and back down, and God just wants us to speak up, to speak the truth of God in love. Listen, guys. You don't need to be quiet. I don't need to be quiet. And here's what I'm finding. The more I speak, and if I speak it in love and with compassion and do a little bit of my homework, that people, especially in this great city, will at least hear us out. So let me ask you to pray with me as we wrap up part one of three, okay? Next week, we're going to go from like 10 to 16, 17, and 18. And then the following week, we're going to finish it up. And that will conclude our... For the one series of sermons. And I don't know about you, church family, but I have been greatly challenged. I've been challenged by Jesus, the author of our faith. So compassionate and yet very, very direct and, and even confrontational and intentional at times. And I, I've learned a lot from him this week. Maybe you're here today and you say, Brother Danny, I've got your testimony. It's this truth. I'm very religious. I walked down the aisle of a Baptist church. I filled out my name, but nothing happened to me. There was no salvation. There was no born again by the Spirit of God. And the reason I know that is because, by and large, I'm pretty mean. I'm pretty mean. I'm pretty cantankerous. I'm pretty hard to get along with. I am as straight as a gun barrel, and I'm equally as empty. Do you think God would have mercy on me in my elite religious lostness. And I can just tell you, friend, from experience, God will save. It's just you have to humble yourself and admit what those who already know you already know about you, that you're empty spiritually. Would you admit it and just say, God, forgive me. Have mercy on me. Cleanse me. Now, when you do that, I want to go ahead and remind you that you're going to have to be baptized again, not to go to heaven but to make a statement that this is real to you and that you're willing to say, I've, I've pretty much been a fraud, but now God has changed me. And I want to invite you to do that. I really do. I don't, I don't want you to go another day in the doubt and the worry and the, I really wonder if I'm going to heaven or not. Listen, guys, you can settle that. You can settle that 
just by repenting and turning to Jesus for forgiveness. Some of you are here today and you need to do that. Others of you are here. You would say, I, I need a church that teaches the Bible. I, I need to come. I need to be a part. I, my next step is to get plugged into a church that, and of all churches, a church that would preach the Bible in Austin, Texas, where just this morning people were arrested, arrested on Lamar Avenue. Many of them put in jail out of protesting, angry over political decisions made welcome to Austin. This is our city. They're not in church, by the way. <laughs> they're, they're at the, the Lamar Bridge protesting. Hey, that's where God put us. God put us right in the heart of liberalism, secularism, humanism, right in the heart of this so that we could be a voice of truth and love and life. Would you, would you join in with us? And would you help us? We're so much stronger together than we could ever be alone. Maybe this is the church for you. I invite you. I'd love to be your pastor. I'd love to preach to you, pray for you, encourage you. Our staff would love to minister to you. Why don't you take a step toward God today and say, we want to be a part of this church. So, Lord God, we thank you for this time of invitation. Thank you, Lord, that we can stand to our feet and we can plead with people and say, come to Christ. Come and be saved. Come. Take a step of faith and it is a step of faith. It's not a step in the darkness. It's a leap in the light. And let them come, God. Others are here, others are here today, Lord, and they're so burdened. They're so, so weighted down with worry and, and trouble and, and pain. And, God, I pray you would lift that off of them. Lord, you said my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Help us exchange our burden for your burden. And, Lord, I just pray now in the name of Jesus that your will would be done at Great Hills Baptist Church. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening today. Would you stand to your feet? We're going to have our time of invitation, and we do invite you to come. We'll have people here at the front. We'll pray with you. We'll encourage you. Just take that step of faith, that next step. I found that when, I, when it was me and when I was sitting out there and I was, my heart was like, boom, boom, boom. And I was like, oh, no, I know what's coming. This is hard. But the time I just took the first step, it's like the Holy Spirit just went, watch this, and here I come. And it's like, here we go. And that can happen to you today. Terry, you lead us as we sing. God bless you now as you come. We're praying for you right now.